can turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark is the second book of the New Testament after Matthew. So Matthew, Mark. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in these black chairback pockets. Um, And if you want to keep it, it's yours. We want everyone to have the Word of God, so if you don't have one, feel free to take that one as well. We're going to Mark chapter 3. But before we do, um, every year at the university where I went, where I did my undergrad, in the first week of school, before classes even began, when all of the freshmen are running around like chickens with their heads cut off, they would have a day, an entire day devoted to student organizations coming out onto the campus quadrangle, setting up booths, and trying to advertise themselves to new students, trying to get new students involved. And when I was a freshman, I, on that day, signed up for a Christian student group, which I wasn't even all that interested in, but God used that in an amazing way, and I'm so grateful. I also signed up for the skydiving club, which I never went to because it was too expensive and it was too scary. Um, but I think, I think that's a common experience on college campuses. I think a lot of college campuses do that, and I think it's because the school administrators recognize that one of the most basic human needs is community. We need to be with people that are like us. And so once these college freshmen find where they're sleeping and where they can get some food, they're still not set for life until they have some friends, so they have some community. And many people are fortunate that they find deep, satisfying community in their families. At best, families can be an incredibly fulfilling community. They know you better than anyone else. By the time you reach adulthood, you've already sinned against them in every way possible, and so they know the worst about you, and they still accept you. You're born into it, so you can't lose your membership, and when you can go nowhere else, you can always go home. But I wonder how many families actually live up to the ideal, because families can be broken, right? They can be broken even before you're born. Families can disappoint you so deeply that you, you can't even be around your family without feeling acutely the disappointment. Um, families can exclude you if you don't share their priorities or their politics or their religion, right? Families can, families can turn away from you, families, or families can be really wonderful but far away, which is the case with many people here. So being born into a family is no guarantee of experiencing the kind of community that you need, the kind of community you were made for. But this passage, this passage in Mark 3 that we're going to look at, is going to show that that the biological family, the human family, even the best ones, are only a pointer to a deeper community, a deeper family found by those who embrace Jesus Christ. So if you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 35. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he could, they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Baalzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. 
And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we, we have come again so needy for you this morning. We have come um, with many cares. We have come with joys. We have come with worries. Um, we have come with distractions. And we need you to come and speak to us and change us, and make us the people you want us to be. God, please come and glorify your son, Jesus Christ, and help me to lift him up in my preaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in a nutshell, the message of this text for us this morning is, the deep community for which you were made is found only by those who embrace Jesus completely. The deep community for which you were made, we were made for something, but it's found only by those who embrace Jesus completely. So in this passage, we're going to see three characteristics of the community found by those who embrace Jesus. That it's a called community, it's a family community, and it's an exclusive community. So first, we're going to see that it's a called community. The first thing we see about this community is that Jesus is the one who takes the initiative to make it happen. Jesus is the one who calls it together. So this, this story, this, this happening in Jesus' life, happens at a time when Jesus is being followed by great crowds. It says in verses 7 and 8. And these great crowds aren't just his neighbors. They're not just people from around where he lives. They're coming from the far south. It says from Jerusalem and Judea and Idumea. They're coming from the north, from Tyre and Sidon. They're coming from the east, east of the Jordan River. They're coming from the whole region to follow this man around. Because Stories about the authority of his teaching and about his healing power, like the healing we saw last week when he healed the man's withered hand. These stories are going out, and everybody wants to see and hear this man with his teaching and this power. So these great crowds are following him, but Jesus didn't come to gather crowds. He came to make disciples. And so Jesus, instead of kind of basking in the adulation of the crowd, he goes off by himself into the hills. He goes, it says, to the mountain. He goes up the mountain in verse 13 and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. From this large group of people, from these great crowds, he picked 12 guys that he wanted to be with him. And this wasn't normally the way this sort of thing happened at the time. At the time, if you wanted to study under a rabbi, you wanted to learn the Jewish law, you would go to a rabbi that you respected and you'd say, 
hey, can I follow you around? Can I be your student? Can I, can I be a part of your entourage? And the rabbi would kind of think about it, and he would probably ask you some questions, do some tests, evaluate, kind of like applying for college and then getting accepted. And if he wanted you in, you were in. And these rabbis would, of course, only want the best of the best. But whenever you see Jesus making disciples, Jesus is the one inviting. Jesus is the one initiating. So four of these guys were fishing when Jesus came to them and called them to follow him. One of them was at his tax booth where he was extorting his fellow Jews. And Jesus called him and he left it to walk with him. Jesus is always the one initiating. He's the one inviting. He's the one picking the guys. He doesn't pick the wealthiest or the most educated or the most religious. He picks the guys that he wants to be with him. And he didn't just call them to kind of huddle up and be part of his, part of his crew. He called them to a job. It says, verse 14, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. Apostles just means guys that get sent, sent ones, whom he named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So he, so he called them to be with him. He called them to follow him around, to go where he went, to eat when he ate and to sleep when he slept and to rejoice with him and to suffer with him. He called the disciples to be with him, but he also called them to be like him, to do the things that he's doing. Jesus is going about preaching, healing, casting out demons, and he's calling these guys to do what he does, to be with him and to be like him. So right on the surface, we can see that this is a called community. This is Jesus calling these guys to a purpose, calling them to himself. But there's something even a little below the surface that Mark wants us to see as well. There's something, the way he sets this scene, it's supposed to trigger something from us. So here we have Jesus, who is God himself, on a mountain, calling 12. And we're supposed to think, where else in the Bible? Where else do we see God on a mountain with 12? If you've read the Bible very much, you might be familiar with the story of the Exodus. And at the time of the Exodus, God, at that time as well, called 12 to meet with him on a mountain. At that time, it wasn't 12 men, it was 12 tribes. So the people of God had been in slavery in Egypt. They'd been brutally oppressed. They'd called out to God for help. God had heard them, he'd remembered his promises, and he brought them out of Egypt. He sent plagues on Egypt. He turned the heart of Pharaoh to set his people free. He even, you'll remember, you know, Charlton Heston splitting the sea so they could walk through on dry land. All of this God did not because the people were good, not because they were persuasive, but because he loved them, because he'd chosen to love them, because they were precious to him, and he wanted to bring them to himself. So he brought them out of Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, and there he gave them the law. And the law wasn't this list of things where he said, okay, now do these things, and then I'll love you, and then I'll accept you, then I'll save you. He said to them, I am the Lord who has already saved you. Now here's the way to live as my people. If you live according to these ways, then you will glorify me, and the nations will know who I am. All of God's laws were a way of responding to his initiation, to his calling, to his gathering. They weren't a way of earning it. This is how he says it in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. The Lord called to Moses out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Did you hear it there? You have seen what I did. Now, therefore, if you'll obey my voice, I'll make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He means that, that when the people of God obey him, when they're like him, that each one of them, every man and every woman, is a kind of priest, is someone who can show the holiness and greatness of God to the people around them. And that was God's call to them then. But it was, he called them by grace, and then he gave them work to do. Just like Jesus on the mountain, he called the apostles to himself by grace, not because they deserved it, because he loved them, and then he gave them work to do. And this is a really significant moment in the history of God's people because, because Jesus is starting something brand new with these 12 guys. Jesus has come to his people. He's come to the Jews, and the religious leaders have, they have rejected him. In fact, we can see, if you look back in chapter 3, verse 6, they were already trying to kill him. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They had rejected him entirely, and so Jesus went away from there, and he pulled 12 guys aside, and he said, we're going to start something new, a new community, a new people of God who will love and trust in me and who will go all over the world and tell people about me. This, these 12 guys on a mountain, these guys that nobody else wanted, this is the embryo of the church. It's the beginning of what is still happening here today because these people did. They went out and they preached. And then they sent other people out and they preached. And the good news has gone not everywhere, but almost everywhere in the world. And what these guys are experiencing, being called up to God on the mountain, is what we were all made for. We were made to be with God. We were made to be sent out by him. Adam and Eve, before sin entered the world, they lived this life. They lived in perfect community with God in the garden. He had work for them to do. He wanted them to go into the world and show his image. They were called to be with him and to be like him, but they sinned and they were cast out of the garden. They had to leave the presence of God. And ever since then, we've been trying to find ways to get back in. So in, in the Bible, one group of people tried to build a tower so high they could touch heaven, so high they could make it back to God, but that didn't work. And people have tried to keep all of the laws in the Bible, and maybe that will work. Or maybe we can make so many sacrifices that God will be merciful to us. But what they don't understand is that we can never make ourselves acceptable to God. We can never make ourselves presentable. The initiative has to be his. God has to come looking for us. And he does. He did it on the mountain with, with Israel. He did it on the mountain with the apostles, and he does it for us. It's why Jesus has come in the first place to die on a cross to forgive us of our sins so we could be gathered in to the people of God. It's the way it's always been. God is the husband whose wife has cheated on him, but who goes looking for her to bring her home. He's the father whose son has taken all of his money, but who doesn't care about the money. He just wants his son back. God, God is always the wronged party, but God is also the one always looking for reconciliation. This community that Jesus is forming is a community called by him, called by grace, not a community that has made itself acceptable. And if it's by grace, if the community is by grace, then anyone is welcome. You don't have to be good enough. Nobody is. It's, 
It's by God's initiation. It's by God's calling. Anyone can come, but they have to come. So first, the community found by those who embrace Jesus is a called community. Second, it's a family community. A family community. And here, we have to, here we're going to see something that's going to happen a couple times in Mark's gospel. We're going to have a story with a, a story about something seemingly unrelated jammed right in the middle of it. So as we go through the gospel of Mark, we're going to see a story about Jesus going to, to heal a dying girl. And right in the middle of it, as an interruption, we'll see a story about a woman coming to Jesus for healing of a discharge of blood. And later we'll see a story about Jesus cursing a fig tree And then right in the middle of that story, there'll be a story about Jesus cleansing the temple. And here, it's a story about Jesus' family. Jesus' family looking for him. And right in the middle, there's a story about Jesus' enemies. And the technical term that I kept seeing for this in all the books I was reading this week is sandwich. That's that's the best we can do is it's a sandwich. Like the same thing on the outsides and something different in the middle. But I am not a huge fan of sandwiches. I think it's because I ate too many growing up in sack lunches I took to school. And so I prefer the term that Ryan used last week, which is the Oreo cookie. Okay, so it's the cookie, cream filling, cookie. Same things on the outside, something different in the middle. And so we want to see why Mark uses the Oreo strategy here. And he uses the Oreo strategy because he wants us to get both things together. He wants us to get some of each in every bite. Because there's something about one that's going to help us understand the other. And we're going to see that in a little bit. But first, let's look at the cookie portion of the Oreo, the story about Jesus' family. So it starts in verse 20. It says, Then he went home. And home probably doesn't mean where his family lives. It means he went back to Peter's house in Capernaum, where it was kind of home base. And if you remember the last time they were there, it was so crowded that four guys had to cut a hole in the roof and drop a friend, a paralyzed friend down just so Jesus could heal him. So we're hoping that at this point the, the roof has been mended and it's a, it's a you know, watertight structure again because Jesus has come back. And just like last time, a huge crowd gathers and they press in so tight, it says in verse 20, they could not even eat. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means they're so shoulder to shoulder, they couldn't like even lift their hands to their face or if it just means they couldn't make it to where the food was kept. But it was so full They didn't have room to eat. And then verse 21, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. So his family hears. Jesus is out and about. There are these huge crowds following him. And they're thinking, this guy may not know when to say when. Because they probably also know, almost certainly, that Jesus has been having some pretty serious run-ins with the Jewish authorities. He's He's been saying things that make them crazy. He's been questioning their interpretation of the Old Testament. He's been, he's been interacting with people they think are worthless, like, like tax collectors and prostitutes. He's been saying outrageous things that they think are blasphemy, like he can forgive sins, which God alone can do. And we've seen that they're already looking for a way to kill him. So it's probably unlikely that Jesus' family knows there's a death plot, but they know this guy is getting himself into a lot of trouble And he doesn't seem to be doing anything to get him out of it. And so they went out to seize him. It says they they were saying, he's out of his mind. We love him, but he is crazy. And they they want what's good for him. I think that's what we, like we should see that Jesus' family isn't going out because they're mean. They love him. They want to bring him home and talk some sense into him. But they want to bring him by force if they have to. 
So, it continues in verse 31, after the story about the enemies. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. They couldn't get into the house, right? It was so crammed with people, they couldn't even, like, see where Jesus was. They, they kind of started a game of telephone, like, will you tell Jesus that we're out here, and then it passes along until it comes to Jesus. Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And his answer would have shocked everybody. It would have seemed so disrespectful. Who are my mother and my brothers? Right? He doesn't even acknowledge that he knows what they're talking about. And, and that would have shocked everybody in the room. And then he looks around. It says that looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. These people, these people crammed in on the floor, eager to hear from me, these are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. He's not saying those people outside aren't my family. He's not disowning them. He's saying in comparison to what's in here, this is the real family and those are the outsiders. He's saying I'm closer to the person I just met today who does the will of God than I am to my nearest blood relative, to my own mother who does not do the will of God. My true family is these people in here gathered around me. This is my brother and sister and mother. So the community Jesus is forming is a family community, a family even more close-knit than the family you were born into. And we always say, and it's true, blood is thicker than water, but there's something thicker than blood. What binds the people who love Jesus? And I'm glad to say that this has been my experience and Kim's since we've been with you. We've been with you now three months on island. Um, and, you know, Kim and I, with the exception of a couple summer trips, we've, we've never lived anywhere except the American Midwest. We'd never met anyone from South Africa. And since we've been here, it feels like everyone we meet is from South Africa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this community still feels like home. This, I'm, I'm not saying K-Man, although we love it here. This community feels like home because we share Christ. There are differences between us, and it takes some getting used to, but this is home to us because we all belong to Jesus. We meditate on the same Bible. We pray to the same Father with the help of the same Spirit. We return time and time again to the death and resurrection of the same Lord Jesus. And compared to those massive eternal realities, little things like on what continent you were born make relatively no difference. What's mad, what matters is our relationship to Jesus. You guys feel like home to us. And isn't that what a family is, really? It's the people who feel like home. It's the place where you can rest and be yourself. And I, I, I say this with some trembling, because I know that when we talk about how the church, about God's, Jesus' family, when we talk about that being even more tight-knit, even deeper than the biological family, that can be really hard to hear for some people. And especially if you're not a Christian. I've known lots of, uh, lots of uh, spouses, lots of parents who come to church, not because they believe it, but because they really want to support their wife or their husband or their kids who do believe. They do it because family's the most important thing, and this is important to you. I want it to be important to me. I want to come. And I don't, I don't assume that there's nobody like that here this morning who comes for family. And so it can be really hurtful, I think, to hear me say from the front, this is your real family now, right? It sounds even cultish. Um, what I want to say to you is, we want you here too. We want you in the community. And so if you want, start having conversations with your relatives, 
who are believers and say, I don't understand why this is so important to you. I don't understand why this connects you with these other people when I don't even understand it. And start having those conversations and coming in to the community. And it's, it's hard from the other side as well, right? It's hard to be the only Christian in your family. It's hard when the most important thing in your life you can't share with your spouse or with your parents or with your kids. And I, I want you to hear me say, God is not calling you, and Jesus is not calling you to abandon your family now that you've been brought in to the family of Jesus. But he is calling you to set the priority with his family. He's saying, your family's important. Honor your father and mother but this family is even deeper and closer than that family. I'm sure that Jesus always honored his father and mother, right? Jesus never sinned, but he did disappoint them. Like he disappointed his family here. There are times when the church has to come first. And so if your family is keeping you from drawing near to Jesus, from participating in the church, it's probably time to have conversations about that as well and ask God for wisdom and for help to do the things he's called you to do. So the ties shared by those who embrace Jesus, they transcend the strongest worldly bonds, even more than family, but they also, they also go past the largest worldly differences. They overcome them. In this family community, people who, have never, who might never have become friends otherwise can become, become something even closer than friends, brothers and sisters. So when I said that in a nutshell, this is about the deep community for which you were made, this is what I'm talking about, not shallow community where you can have drinks and watch football and never talk about anything of substance, never ask anything of each other, never lean on each other. I'm talking about a community where you can share what's most troubling to you and you can be cared for, and where you can share what's most important to you and be understood. It's a community where you, you won't ever be shunned for not being perfect, because everybody here knows they're not perfect either, and Jesus had to die for them just the same. It's a community where you'll also be called to change and grow because everyone else is striving for that as well. It's a place where people can be very different and yet feel like home because this is the family of Jesus. A significant part of our vision as Sunrise is to become a church where faith in Jesus is the strongest glue between unlikely friends, where people who could never relate to each other otherwise can relate deeply because of Jesus. And it's why we encourage people to get into community groups, which can act as kind of a nuclear family, um, where through the week you're doing the things we're called to as a people, and the things that we're called to do when we gather as kind of a family reunion on Sunday mornings. So how should we be relating to the church as a family community? First, recognize what a gift it is to have other Christians in your life. There are people in the world who are dying for lack of community, who would love to meet one other believer. And we get to rub shoulders all week, right? You can't escape one another on this island. I did a lot of my sermon preparation at Kamana Bay this week, and that place is crawling with you people. I, I see you all the time, and we get to interact, and it's such a gift to have one another. Ryan has been quoting often recently from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a German pastor and writer during World War II. And this book from his or this quote from his book, Life Together, which you can get at the book table, is so good. He says, It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us. And he's writing this as a, a persecuted minority under the Nazis. So it's very real for them. It could be taken from them any time. 
that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his needs and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Just imagine what your life would be like if you were the only Christian you know. What you'd be missing out on on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings and coffee and meeting at the pool and thank God's grace that you have what you have. So once you've recognized the gift that it is to have this family, start acting like it's your family. Do with this family what you do for your family. Make time for it. Sacrifice things that are important to you in order to do things that are important to us. Be willing to lean on the church and make big requests of us. When you need help with the house, when you need help with the kids, when you need help with illness, whether you need meals or rides or advice about something going on in your life, be willing to lean on the church like you lean on your family. When you have conflict, work it out. You can't just turn your back on your family. Your family is for keeps. And so start treating the church like your family. It's going to be inconvenient, right? It was inconvenient to Jesus. These people crowded into his house. He couldn't even eat. And then later, he's going to go to the cross and die for sin. There's no greater inconvenience than that, and yet that's what love means. That's what it means to love. So Jesus is forming a new community. It's a called community and a family community. Third and finally, as we make our way to the cream filling in Mark's Oreo cookie, we'll see that it's an exclusive community. An exclusive community. And I use that word exclusive knowing that it rubs a lot of people the wrong way because it kind of smacks of country clubs and gated communities and places that pride themselves on keeping the riffraff out. And that is not the kind of exclusive that this community is. It's not trying to keep the riffraff out. (laughs) In fact, the riffraff is everybody inside. That's not the kind of exclusive it is. It's exclusive in this sense. Anyone can be in. Anyone can come in and trust Christ and be brought in, but not everyone is in. Anyone can be in, but not everyone is in. The door is always open, but you must come through the door. And we'll see what that that means when we look at the passage. So we've seen how in the beginning of Mark, there's been this rising popularity of Jesus, right? From a few followers to crowds to great crowds, and there's been this rising conflict from the Jewish leaders kind of asking questions like, why why is he doing that? And, And why do you let them do that? And why did you say that? And now they're done asking questions, right? They, now they've made an assessment. They know they need to do some damage control because Jesus is becoming so popular. And so the scribes, it says, come down from Jerusalem, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, which is just another name for the devil. So they, they brought up the big guns, right? They, we've got to do something about Jesus. I know, we'll tell everyone he's possessed by the devil. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So this is like the most serious accusation you can make, right? By saying that someone is possessed by the devil. And it also makes no sense, which is what Jesus points out. He says in verse 23, he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Like how can a man take himself by the scruff of the neck and throw him out the door? How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen against himself 
and is divided. He cannot stand, but it's coming to an end. Like if Jesus is casting out demons by Satan, that is Satan bringing the house down on top of him. That is the end of the Satan plan. That's the end of his kingdom. And Satan may be the most evil being in existence, but he's not a moron. He knows better than to bring down the kingdom from inside. Jesus isn't, can't be, casting out demons by the power of demons. He's not possessed by Satan. But then what is the power? What power does Jesus have to make them do what he says? So in, in battle, in war, only two people really can make you drop your gun, right? Either a superior officer or an enemy who is so strong that he's unbeatable and you just give up and lose hope. So if Jesus isn't the superior officer, there's only someone, only one person he can be. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So Satan is a strong man. Jesus doesn't deny it. But Jesus is stronger still. Jesus is strong enough to bind him and to plunder his house. I love this picture because it's like the coming of Jesus, right? He is setting people free. He is forgiving people. He's setting them free from the fear of death. He's taking people back. He is coming into the house and he's just pulling everything out. He is looting and plundering Satan's house and taking humans as his spoils of war, taking them as his prize. He is, he is plundering Satan's house. And he's doing it not by the power of Satan, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Spirit of God. Which means that the scribes have taken things that God the Holy Spirit is doing and have said that those are the work of the devil. And Jesus has some incredibly strong words for them about that. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And we should spend just a little time here because this passage can make people despair. I mean, nothing could be scarier right, than there being an unforgivable sin and not really knowing if you've done it. And people have agonized over this. So we need to see what it is. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus says will never be forgiven? And Jesus makes it clear because he's responding to them who has said, Jesus has an unclean spirit. He's saying, you said I'm doing things by the power of Satan, but I'm doing things by the power of God. And in the Bible, blasphemy is the opposite of praise. It's the opposite of worship. It's, it's robbing God of glory. It's robbing him of honor. It's bringing curses and reproach on his name. And by taking the glorious works the Holy Spirit was doing through Jesus and calling them acts of the devil, they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They were dragging his name through the mud. They were robbing him of the glory and honor that is due to him. The scribes were so angry at Jesus though they could clearly see it couldn't be the power of Satan. It didn't make any sense to make that accusation, though they could clearly see it. They were so bent on turning people away from Jesus, they didn't care. They didn't care that they blasphemed as long as they got what they wanted. They were not just blind, but willfully blind. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something you just slip up and do. It's not something that happens when you stub your toe unexpectedly. It's the product of a settled, 
willful opposition to Jesus at any cost. And frighteningly, it will never be forgiven. And I don't, I don't think it's likely that it's never forgiven because it's not forgivable, as if God's mercy were not sufficient. God's mercy, God's mercy is all sufficient. The cross of Jesus is good for any sin. I think it's not going to ever be forgiven because they're never going to ask. That someone who commits it has become so hardened in their heart that they will never turn from it. They will never repent. They will never seek forgiveness. In the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, there's a scene where the battle lines are being drawn. Right On the one side, the people who are loyal to Aslan, to the great lion, to goodness. And on the other side, those who are opposed to him. And they come and meet in battle, but there's a group of dwarfs who stand off on the side, and, and they don't want to be for any side. They're only for themselves. And so they shoot arrows at whichever side seems to be winning at any given time. They'll shoot the good guys. If they seem to be overpowering, they'll shoot the bad guys. If they're winning, they just want to be for themselves. They want to be left alone. They don't want to be taken in by persuasion from either side. They keep saying, the dwarfs is, are for the dwarfs. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. And when the battle is over, and Aslan has come, and he's made the world new, and everything is beautiful and fresh and full of life, the dwarfs are unable to see it. They can't see or taste or experience any of the beauty. They sit in a beautiful meadow, and they think they're trapped inside a shed. A flower held to their nose they think is a thistle. When they're fed this great feast of food, rich food and wine, they think it's just cabbage and trough water. They're totally unable to experience the goodness of it because they've hardened themselves so much. They've convinced themselves so thoroughly that it's not true, that when it comes true around them, they're unable to, to admit that they were wrong and to start enjoying it. And I think that's how it is with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When you're so opposed to Jesus that you're willing to blaspheme God in order to get what you want, in order to turn people away from him, you're so hardened, you will never seek forgiveness. I think it's incredibly unlikely that anyone who fears they've committed it and wants to be forgiven has actually committed it. Because the people who've committed it would never come to God for anything. And we ought to take courage from the Apostle Paul in this. Paul, before he trusted Jesus, was a Pharisee. He was an opponent of Jesus. The book of Acts describes him, it says that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he describes himself as persecuting the church to death, binding and throwing in prison men and women. He says, in fact, that he tried to make Christians blaspheme. He wanted them to blaspheme themselves. He was as opposed to Jesus as a person can be. And this is what he says in 1 Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are believe in him for eternal life. Paul is saying that the, the function I play is, I was the worst person on the planet, and God had mercy on me as a way of showing that he can have mercy on anyone. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I hated and killed God's people, and he made me an apostle. So no one is too far out to be forgiven. So if, if Paul went to that extreme and found mercy, I don't think anyone should ever fear 
that they've outsinned the mercy of God, that if they come to him in repentance, that he can bring them in. Jesus says in John 6:37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So we probably, most of us, don't need to worry that we've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, but there is something we need to worry about. And it's here we need to see the connection between the story about Jesus' enemies and the story about his family. We need to see the reason for the Oreo. Mark wants us to see that there's something in common between Jesus' family and his enemies. And you can see it if you start reading in verse 21. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. They're both, they're both making accusations of Jesus. One thinks he's crazy, one thinks he's the devil, both pretty bad, but in neither case are they trying to support Jesus in his mission. They, they're trying to turn him from what he's doing. Now one of them, his family, loves him very much. And one group hates him completely. But in both cases, they're trying to turn him from what he came to do. Neither had embraced him completely. They're both outsiders in the community. Those who have trusted in Jesus, who are in the house, are his family. And both his family and his enemies are on the outside. You can miss out on the community that Jesus is making by being all out opposed to him, and you can miss out on it by just not embracing him completely, by liking some things about him, but not liking other things, and just kind of holding him at arm's length. It's in this sense that it's an exclusive community. You have to come through the door. You have to trust in Jesus and accept him completely as he is, not as you want him to be. As he says in verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And they were doing the will of God because they'd come to listen. They'd come to hear. They'd come to trust in him and be near him. So this calls for examination. Think about your own life, as honest as you are able to be with yourself. Have you embraced Jesus completely? I don't mean, are you perfect? Everyone in the community still needs forgiveness every day. And I don't mean, have all your questions been answered? Because, because we are still seeking understanding as well. But I mean is, are you able to take Jesus as Lord entirely, as Savior entirely, or are still some things about him you don't like? Can you accept him as a good teacher, but you can't stomach what he says about being one with God? Can you appreciate his calls for justice, but not stomach what he says about hell lasting forever? Do you love his talk about forgiveness, but get uncomfortable with repentance? Do you wish he was a little different, a little more suited to your tastes? Be careful. The deep community for which you were made which will satisfy you, where all the joy and warmth and forgiveness you could, you could ask for are found. That community is found only by those who embraced Jesus completely. His family, until they trusted him, were still cut off from it. This community in which God himself calls you near and becomes your family is exclusive, but the door is always open. The invitation stands. It's not just for perfect people. There are no perfect people apart from Jesus. It's for those who are willing to admit that they can't make themselves acceptable, that they need Jesus' death on the cross to forgive them and bring them before God. The door is always open, but you must come through the door. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you call us to yourself, that when we could not make it to you, that you brought us to yourself. You called us by grace. You called us to be with you and to be like you. We thank you that you have knit us together, that we're not alone with you, but we have one another to encourage us and to care for us and to point us to you. We thank you that you have done this all through sending your son for us, and I ask that we would trust him, that we would accept him completely, that we would draw near to him as he is and worship him as God. Father, please draw all those who don't trust you to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.